0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello and welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester at home with me, Clint Boone. Across this mini-series, we're going to be talking to some inspirational Mancunians to continue to celebrate the spirit of our city whilst we're in lockdown. This week, I'm joined by writer Emma-Jane Unsworth. Emma talks about how her family heritage helped to launch her into a career as an author.
3: I know I wouldn't have the life I've got now without that printing factory and everything that it gave me, you know, in every way, really. So I'll always be a printer's daughter at heart, I think.
2: And she describes our own town is so central to her writing.
3: It's always there, you know. It's even though I live in Brighton now, um, you know that's where my husband's work is. But all I write about is Manchester. My imagination is just there. My soul is there, and always will be. I think
2: it gives me great pleasure. To Welcome to Excess Manchester's Humans of Excess Manchester at home, uh, a Mancunian author who went from being a journalist to releasing three extremely successful novels, one of which became a hit film and one of which is currently being adapted for TV. Emma-Jane Unsworth, welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester, how are you doing?
3: Thank you so much for having me Clint, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm good, thank you. Yes, how are you?
2: fantastic despite everything that's going on in the world at the moment yeah. so f- f- before we talk about the the, the lockdown etc you are you're pregnant aren't you very publicly pregnant shows the swab on your arm I am, I am. In the midwife. yeah
3: check it out yeah yeah so, public blood's taken today but, so yeah yeah so just 10 weeks so pretty early days but um but all seems to be going well but it's a strange old time you know to be, to be pregnant it's a strange old time to be anything right now isn't it but but i think just yeah i'll tell you what i'm pretty glad i'm not having the baby right now though because i don't know how the women have been getting on who are actually having, you know having to give birth sort of so, i don't know that some people have to give birth on their own and stuff it's been a, yeah all been a bit scary and
2: to be honest I've, I've heard stories with people having babies and it's been fine and the midwives are cracking on with it as normal yeah. so I, I mean bearing in mind that now is the most intense part of the lockdown hopefully yeah. i think by time you have yours you'll be you'll be sailing oh, it so
3: yeah yeah, I think sure. yeah, yeah yeah
2: yeah fingers crossed and uh, so what the practicalities day to day at the moment being uh, locked down i mean as, as a writer i just assume you're doing shitloads loads of writing <laughs> <are> you? <laughs> do you
3: know what <laughs> if i had a penny for every time someone said that to me lately i'd be a millionaire um you'd think wouldn't you i'd be doing loads i've been doing a bit lately i've been getting into the swing of it i've been getting my head into the right place because without wanting to sound like a wanker it's not like i feel like you've got to get your head's got to be in the right spot to do anything creative, right? And so, so it's just been it's been an onslaught for various reasons, just because of the worry of it and the anxiety of it. But I've got a three-year-old as well, so obviously our routine was just completely shot with that. And my husband's a yeah. GP and NHS GP. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was all. Everything just the world just suddenly started, you know, going and um, and and glooping and falling all over the place, and and feeling very 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 unstable. So it was even though theoretically I can do my work from home, and I feel very lucky to be able to do that. It wasn't it wasn't really possible just for for loads of loads of reasons at first. But that said, the past week or so, in fact, the past two weeks, it's been feeling like weirdly a bit normal. And I've been able to yeah. kind of get, you know, get into the routine of it. And and just, in a way, it's good not having to travel and not having any travel, or, you know, knowing that I don't have to be in London loads or have any meetings, yeah. you know, anything like that. I can just hunker down and focus on the work.
2: Yeah, tell me about that. That's what's happened to me because I've gone from being... Uh, the busiest man in Manchester where people every every night when I'm out DJing, people are like, I don't know how you do it. Is There's the three of you. Are you cloned? <laughs> I've gone from being like just frantically running around working day and night to actually in a funny way, just having this really idyllic sort of moment in time where I'm able to sit in this room, the studio home and make music and do radio and do interviews and be creative and do pictures of cows and whatever else I want to do it's just bizarrely beautiful at the moment I feel guilty saying it yeah I've heard other people saying the same thing that guiltily yep. we're actually enjoying this moment enjoying in time it. of I think so yeah crazy...
3: sorry a lot of creative people are quite introverted aren't they naturally so I think it suits it suits us to sort of be a little bit you know in a little shell away from the world yeah it's quite a nice place but... to be. do you think it'll change the way you work going into the future do you think it'll Definitely. be more at home
2: definitely i am convinced that this is my moment my moment to change because i have you know famously i'm i'm i've I'm, I'm just turned 60 and i'm running around like an 18 year old lad doing all these jobs you know like dj gigs three gigs on a saturday night every weekend two gigs on a friday night six radio shows <laughs> I a week I could do <laughs> three kids homeschooled it's like just it's it's frantic but it's, i've always enjoyed it and i've got the energy for it but yeah i just think that this is the time now where I'm not going to say yes to everything.
3: Yeah. And
2: if I I can do something remotely from home, I will do. So the other day, for example, I did a beautiful little discussion with a load of music students from Leeds College. I did it over Zoom. Yeah. And it it was lovely. And it was like, I didn't have to drive an hour each way to get there and find somewhere to park and have a wee on the way. And, you know, it's like all... It's just a really, it's not like getting a hug off somebody, is it? But I feel like I'm going to be even more productive than ever I've been. But
3: Yeah, that's great. It's a really good time to take stock, isn't it, over what's really enriching your life and what you're really yeah. getting the most out of and what actually makes you happy as a human. Hmm. You know, what, yeah. where are the real, real kicks coming from? And who, you know, a friend of mine said the other day, it's a time to sort the wheat from the chaff, you know, in every way, in the nicest yeah. possible way with everything. You, you start to think, what what do I really, really value? You know, what if I've got a, yeah you know, hone it down.
2: Let's talk about your uh your, your youth for so you're born in Bury, weren't you?
3: I was born in Presswich. I was born in St Mary's. Um but yeah. I grew up in Presswich, yeah, very near to Heaton Park.
2: Yeah, beautiful part of the world, isn't it?
3: Oh, do you know what? I love Presswich? Yeah, I really yeah. do. I really do. And especially Heaton Park. So much of my childhood feels like it was characterised and built by Heaton Park, just because my dad would yeah. take us in there every weekend, me and my sister, and we just spent so much time. I've actually got one of the Lions. I don't know if you know Heaton Park.
2: Oh, yeah, I know the Lions. Yeah, obviously. You know. The Lions
3: outside Heaton Hall. See, it's when I moved away from Manchester, actually, I got that done because... Because it felt, because I always loved that lion, and I sat on that lion outside Heaton Hall every Sunday with my sister. You know, that lion, its back is worn by children's bums. It's made of some kind of silvery metal, and its back is worn (laughs) away with so many children's bums over the years. My
2: back's like that. (laughs) (laughs) Giving all my kids donkey rides up and down the stairs. we call it, get your taxi, dad, give me a taxi down to the kitchen. My back's like, it's (laughs) bollocks.
3: They should get a tattoo of you to say. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, yeah, so I've got that done. Just as a little reminder to myself of of yeah, what I love and where I come from.
2: Growing up in Burristoke, uh what, what was your schooling like? Emma, were you clever at school?
3: Well, I was. I was a swat. Yes, I think the right word is swat. <laughs> Let's not be polite. Um, I tried very hard. I tried too hard, really. I put a lot of pressure on myself at school. Um, and I went to, I started off at Bauke Vale. That's where I went to infant school. And then they couldn't take my sister who was three years younger. So we both ended up going to crumpsall Lane, Crumsall. And then um, after that, I went to Berry Grammar. So right. I went up to Berry after that and and yeah but, but and it was you know there, there was a lot of pressure i suppose from the school to to do well and and to to get the right grades but i put a lot of pressure on on myself as well my mom and dad yeah. were always really really cool about what i wanted to do because i always said i wanted to be a writer and my mom and dad were just so my mom and dad never put any pressure on me to like be a doctor or be a lawyer or you know do something proper they were always mm. like well you know do, even though. They really wanted me and my sister to have a very good education. They they also were quite, you know, um, were really sort of liberal about the kind of job that we could do at the end of it, which was brilliant, really, and very lucky because, you know, I just, yeah. it made me feel free. To, it made me feel like I could do whatever I wanted.
2: It's fascinating, your, your dad's side of the family in particular, because he, he was a printer, newspaper printer, wasn't he? And, and yeah, your granddad right. was. I think I believe your great granddad was. Yeah, that's so you got right. this family of this uh, amazing tradition of printing newspapers with ink and bits of metal and everything else that came with it. Yeah. So did you, were you interested in that side of things? I mean, obviously, being a writer, the, the final product is some guy printing it or some girl printing it for you. Yeah. Were you fascinated by that side of things or were you just writing? Did you start writing as a kid? Um, did you ever see yourself getting into the print world or anything?
3: When I was a kid, I used to it kind of it sprang out of nowhere my love of literature really mum and dad used to read to us we used to read you know the usual story books in, in the evening time but we didn't really have like you know bookshelves full of books at home or anything like that it just wasn't our thing and um but it, it became my thing kind of weirdly out of nowhere um i just got a, t- a taste for it and i can't remember where it came from but i think it must have had something to do with my dad being a printer and just that yeah. little love of the printed word respect for the printed word because during the some holidays me and my sister used to go and hang out at my dad's factory and We used to, you know, we used to love it in there, it was just just so exciting. Yeah. the noises and the smells of the ink and and the family heritage attached to it so so definitely definitely it's got to be some some kind of love love of the written word of the printed word and of books that came from yeah. that but um but I was just yeah a bit bit of a daft kind of poetry lover when I was a kid and I used to wear a bonnet down on Sundays my sister wouldn't walk next to me on the street because I used to wear like a floppy <laughs> bonnet because I thought that was that was the way to be a writer you know like Jane Austen or Charlotte Bronte. <laughs> and no. my sister was like I am not walking next to you the shame but i yeah. was like you know this is how you do it but um, but, but it, so it came out of no and I, my family were like geez where's she, where's she come from and then you know, i was the first one to go to university you know just just the first one to sort of like have the audacity to do something arty farty really i think right. i've
2: heard you tell a, i've heard you paint a really beautiful picture of your dad when he uh decided to set up his his print business for the first time and I think you probably would you be like five or six or something he went toddling off into Manchester right. knocking on doors of companies saying I'm going to set up my, the best quality printing company you've ever seen and and didn't he do a lot of work for everybody in Manchester for free he did and then he just oh, so it became it became an instant sensation then he overnight I
3: know do you know I love this about my dad my dad has got a deep entrepreneurial spirit within him and um and and you know he's got real grit in him my dad and he's been a massive inspiration in my life and still is and um and yeah when he was setting up his company they didn't have any work obviously this little two two machines two printing machines they had in a tiny um premises in danzig street which is now print works but it used to be um a street of i think there was a few printers there but it's this one room basically with these two print machines here, two two color machines, and um, and they have no working. And so, my dad was like, Right, I'm gonna go and get us some work. So, he went knocking on all the doors of the people who bought print, the big buyers who bought print in Manchester, so it's a CIS, it's a Green Ashes. It went to Greenoshes, you know, went, went round them all, not and and they take meetings with him. and say, Look, I'll let me do you a job for free, I'll do a job for free. And loads of them said no, but then there was this one guy, I think it was called, I think it was Tony Greenhouse actually, who my dad said, Look, I'll just do you, I'll do you the best. Job you've ever had, and I'll get it back to you for tomorrow. Just give us a chance. And um and he went, Oh right, then I'll give you a go, I'll give you a go. I'm going to have him, have it. And I a Brilliant, I've man as we turned around and then this fella said, Oi, cocky ass, come back in <laughs> a minute. He's like do you reckon you could print that? Do you reckon you could print that? And he sort of gave him a load more jobs to do, and then he And he got, he got the, you know, he got all the work in, and yeah. he, and he was, you know, he definitely had that sort of cheeky cheekiness and that grit to just go out yeah. there and, and do it, and and you know, and yeah, just go for it. It
2: rubs off on your stuff like that. Not just the character that you're describing, but the uh, that that attitude. I've got to get out, and you know, I'm a working class man. I've got to feed my kids and that. Just get out there and do it i still feel my dad's presence a lot of ways he's he was very much that kind of character always doing a bit of wheeling and dealing to keep some money coming in and try anything you know just to get get the uh pay the bills and that i believe your dad's business is still around is it is it new leaf press
3: unfortunately oh is it gone now unfortunately yeah it um it closed a couple of years ago um so so yeah but you know it'll always be a huge part of of the family legacy and heritage and everything really i mean i know i wouldn't have life i've got now without that printing factory and everything that it gave me and you know in every way really and so so it'll always be yeah and i'll never you know the smell of ink it still gets me it still gets me what's the smell of ink and and you know the the sound i'll never forget the sound of of those machines so so yeah i'll always be a printer's daughter at heart i think
2: I bet when you get your your, your books back, the, what they call it, the first draft or the test-pressing, I bet you sniff it and feel it. <laughs> I check, do. Go in and check out the size of the type there. <laughs> I do. I'm a you book nerd. A book
3: nerd. But I went to sign a load of books um, just before my last book came out. And i went to the printers to sign it and it was so exciting because i've not been to a printers for a few years and so and i went in and it was great there's all the pallets and like the forklifts and things and the smell and you know it was just it was brilliant and it and and was the your that-
2: book you, you got to smell your book
3: yeah that's it they all yeah. got, i was mad in there they were like look at we've never had an author come in before <laughs> you know, kind of. didn't it smell
2: like other people's books or did it smell like a, a bit of a different <laughs> sort of book? <laughs>
3: It smelled like mine, you know, like your
2: baby. <laughs> Let's go back to very Grammar School, because there was um, a person there, one of you, a supply teacher or something, I think, that was uh, became very inspirational to, uh, to you, Sherry Ashworth.
3: That's right, Sherry. So so Sherry was an amazing English teacher. She taught me English for GCSE, and, um, and she, but she didn't just teach me English. She taught me just kind of how to value myself as a writer, and she taught me loads about feminism, and she was just one of those teachers that comes along and just, you know, blows you sideways with how brilliant and inspiring they are and changes your life forever. I think just yeah. someone like that just changes your trajectory. Because I suppose before that as well, I'd been wondering about whether to, you know, go to Oxford or Cambridge. The school really pushed for that, you know, pros and cons. It's not always a bad thing. But, but it wasn't for me. And I knew deep down in my gut it wasn't for me either. And Sherry, you know, just said, well, yeah, you're not you're not that academic Emily. you need to be a writer. You need to be creative. You need to be spending your time writing. And if you go to a uni like that, you won't have any time to write. And she was dead right, you know, and, and so, and, and, you know, she was a writer. She was a published novelist as well. So she was just so, it was so inspiring to see her career. You know, she'd talk about conversations she'd have with her agent and I'd be like, woo, an agent, imagine talking to an agent. Oh my God. So, um, so it was just so exciting to hear about the writer's life from Sherry as well as, um, yeah. as her just sort of nourishing me and emboldening me.
2: Yeah, so you ended up going to Liverpool, is that right?
3: I did. I went to the Liverpool University. Uni, but it didn't, didn't go too far from home. I think I was scared to go too far from home, um, but but it was great. I chose it because the English department there was brilliant as well, and I made I had such a good time in Liverpool.
2: What sort of years was that then, roughly? So that Mid- was ninety
3: seven to two thousand. So right. so yes, it was great. You know, I went clubbing and cream loads, and and yeah, it was it was cracking. It, it, um, and then after that i came back to manchester and did an ma in that was when i started to think okay am i going to make proper time to write fiction you know how am i going to do that and so there was an ma in specifically in novel writing at the university of manchester and so so i did that i came home and did
2: that. And what about when did music come into your life Were you into music as a kid
3: i was into Bad music, honestly, brace yourself. I'm gonna be like well, the least cool music person ever on this show, okay? So, it's I, I used to be into like take that, <laughs> all
2: right? They're a good band, man. I'll tell you, okay, good, thanks, yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah.
3: All right, brilliant, good. I loved them, you know, and I, I think I thought they were brilliant. And then I was into loads of sort of, um, I used to go clubbing in 21. Piccadillys and in royals when I was waiting yeah, yeah. To, come to um so I was into like the dancey cl- clubby thing as well I had like you know a really massive perm and a rubber dress thought I was the bee's knees used to go do that and then I was in to take that and yeah. I used to get the bus with some girls from school to Mark Owen's house in Oldham I mean he was, it was his right. mum Mum was there he was never there and,
2: um, and I, used, I used to see <laughs> all oh, you like sat there all you look. <laughs> The kids waiting for Mark to come out. Really? And then he moved He moved to Todmorden. Did you ever go following him <laughs> to Todmorden? That's right.
3: Well, we used to go, we used to smoke consulate menthols on the back of the bus and just yeah. like get dead excited and go there. And I knew his mum, Mary, used to take right. him stopping him for her. And I actually had <laughs> a piece of his wall, a piece of Mark Owen's front wall in my purse for years oh, yeah. because that was that was like, you know, a, a little trophy and a sacred bit of the shrine. But one time we went there to see, to, you know, just to see his mum, we were expecting to see him. And um, and she's like, oh, his brother's playing cricket round at the or, or cricket or football round at the cricket ground or something. So we're like, oh, we'll go and have a look at Danny, you know, next best thing. So we went round to to stalk his brother instead. And Mark was there.
2: Oh amazing. He was
3: there. But the worst thing about it was now I look back. There's all these 14-year-old girls turn up screaming. He's obviously not expected, you don't know how we found him there. And and he just came over, he was wearing a Heinz-Baked Beans hat, I'll never forget. Heinz baked beans beanie. And he came over and we were like going, Mark! Ah! It's you, it's you, I can't believe it. And he just went, how did you find me?
2: Have you met him now, now that you're an adult? Have you met him since? Well,
3: here's a funny thing. So then I started working as a journalist after um, working, and I worked a bit for a mag- magazine called City Live, which was amazing, yeah. um, which didn't exist anymore, but it was brilliant. It was like Manchester Time Out. And then I worked for Manchester News, and I interviewed, I actually interviewed Mark Owen um, during that time, and I told him about this, and he just kind of, he just looked slightly scared. <laughs> <laughs> and I
2: was lovely, like, I'm man. not like
3: that anymore. I'm like a grown-up now. I promise I'm not weird. <laughs> I mean, I'm not as weird as that.
2: <laughs> tell us more about those first jobs and you mentioned a couple of the early jobs there that you did. Um City Life, was that your first one?
3: So City Life was, yeah. So I was the books editor there, and then I was the listings editor there. And then I'd be doing like reviews for the big issue as well, doing bits and bobs, and then and then yeah, then when City Life closed down, I moved over to Manchester Union News and, and worked on the sort of like, entertainment and the listings section there. Yeah. And then when everything was kind of going wrong with, with print media and, and all the advertising was going, I took voluntary redundancy at that point because I'd, I'd been trying to write fiction all this time as well. Um, and i had been enjoying the journalism in that, in that way of using my voice and finding my voice. But I knew that it wasn't the fiction that I really wanted to, to write. But I also knew that I just couldn't do it around a full-time job, especially one that involved a screen, because I was getting like, eye burn. So I'd, like, be working at a screen all day, then I'd go home and try and open another one. I'd just be like, whoa, frazzled. So I couldn't do it. And, and so then when the when the redundancies came up, I asked for it. And, and they were all surprised, actually, because I think that they... I enjoyed my job which I did but but I I knew that it wasn't quite my heart and soul and and I had this other passion that I wanted to try and give myself the time and space so because I've worked there for a certain number of years I got you know a a little wadge of cash and so I used that to survive for about probably about seven months something like that And i wrote a novel in that time so um so that was and that was hungry that ended up being my first novel hungry the stars and everything so i just it was and that was the only way that i I could do it i think i just had to give myself that time some some writers are amazing right some writers get up at 5 a.m and then they go to work and do another job from like 9 a.m i was just never never that writer i just couldn't handle all of that screen time and yeah, I just maybe it was too similar the job I was doing because it was writing as well. Maybe if it had been something different, you know, I would have been able to to split my brain a bit better. But I had to have yeah. the break in order to accomplish a book.
2: I think it's that thing going back to how your dad was, and how I said my dad was that you you pick your little moments, aren't you, to take that little risk and make that transition. And you getting a cushion of money from your redundancy give you that little space to be proper creative for a few months, you know. That's and that's, that's an it. important moment in your time in your life, on it really.
3: And I hope. The, the, almost like the, the pandemic is giving some people the chance to do that as well. You know, if they're on, if they've been furloughed for work and stuff, then I hope that there will be people being able to be creative that haven't been able to before because they've been working nonstop, you know, or they've just not had the time and space for it. It'd be lovely if that if some positives came out of it, you know, in that way as well.
2: We'll talk about Mary Ellen McTagg as well, because she's a close friend of yours and very successful in her field as well. Did you know Mary Ellen from being? I'm I'm talking about Mary Ellen because she was a previous guest on the podcast. Did you know Mary Ellen from being a kid, or did you meet her later on in life?
3: later um let me think through like just the night and day crew because i used to work in night and day for a while um and so just through mutual friends and working day and just hanging around in the northern quarter in my 20s which i did a lot um that's where yeah i met mary ellen and obviously yeah she's she's a super duper famous chef now and just such an inspiring woman in every way um and we've we've worked together a lot over the years as well as just like be be mates We've um she she actually did in a restaurant she used to have called home break which is impressive Um, She, My first book, which was called Hungry the Stars and Everything, takes place over the course of a tasting menu, and Mary Ellen in that restaurant, we did this event, there was only about 30 people there, Um, but Mary Ellen made some of the dishes out of the book. And then we, she served them. And then as she was serving them, I would read out the section of the book that the dish was based on. And it was yeah. such a lovely event. You, you couldn't do it any bigger than that, you know, and, and you know, we didn't make any money out of it. But it was just a lovely, lovely thing to do. And just, yeah, yeah she's, she's, she's such an imaginative, creative, amazing force of nature.
2: And that first novel was really well received. And the uh, second book, Animals, went through the roof, the reviews for it, including Catelyn Moran, or Caitlin Moran saying that she wishes... She said, I wish I'd written this book.
3: I know, that was so nice of her, yeah.
2: That's career <laughs> defining that in it. But then it went on to become a very successful film as well, didn't it? That came out last year, 2019.
3: It did, yeah, yeah, which was a brilliant journey. And I got to write the film, which which was amazing, you know, to be given that opportunity yeah. as a writer, because um not often <clears throat> it's not often that you get the chance to to do that. If you've not re- written a screenplay before, and I hadn't written a screenplay before, that was my first one. But the producer who first optioned the book, Sarah Brocklehurst, the first meeting I had with her, she just said, do you want to write the screenplay? And I said, yes, please. I am. <laughs> know, and I just bit her hand off. The, the whole, I was so lucky because the director, because Sarah and then the director, Sophie Hyde, who came on board, the three of us just worked very closely, literally round Sarah's kitchen table for a bit of it, just breaking it all down, just saying, right, what is the heart of this book? Let's smash the rest of it to pieces keep the heart true and then rebuild it as a film. We worked so closely and I was so involved all the way down the line. That I was very, very lucky to be involved because writers normally in film, you know, no one gives a shit about them. <laughs> and like in Hollywood, they're like, who gives? No, no one cares who the writer is. But I was there, we went to Sundance, we premiered at Sundance. I'm there, you know, and all the pictures, double thumbs up. And they just let me go and like <laughs> enjoy it all with them. And that was just such a lovely introduction to the world of it, you know?
2: And that's a fascinating, another fascinating chapter because you've written a book there, and then you, in the next sentence, you're ripping it apart yeah. to make it into film. So you must have the excitement of the, what I'm doing now is writing something, the film that's going to give the book a new life and a new load yeah. of sales. So it's, it's, it's just nice to be able to adapt, in it? Because a, a lot of authors probably would have said, You're not messing with my book, and yeah. I'm certainly yeah. not going to help you to mess with it, but to just totally change and adapt. Yeah. To, to that, that new opportunity, is, again, it's a credit to you doing that kind of stuff. So.
3: Oh, I well, Sometimes I thought I was the best person for the job, other times I thought I was the worst person for the job. You know, sometimes you think, am I too close to this to, to make it good as a new thing? But I yeah. think you've got the right... It's very much a collaboration. And I mm. think as a writer, the things that I'm precious about, and th- this process made me realise that, the things that I'm precious about are voice and character. And I think I would have been really upset if those had been messed with too much. But I'm not precious about structure because I know that's where I've got to learn. I think you reach a certain point in anything and you know what your strengths and weaknesses are, don't you? And I think that one of my weaknesses is probably structure and plot. And so I'm up for learning. And I think what I learned through, that because there's a kind of maths to screen, which is so satisfying for a film, like things have to happen at certain, literally on certain pages, at page 25, you've got to have a turning point. Page 50, you've got to have a turning point. Whereas in a book, you can meander a lot more. So the maths of that and the formula of it, made it so I could learn it, and, and, and I think just the right support around me made it you know even better to, to do that so so yeah, so the whole process was 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 something I was up for and something I feel i got I had the right people around you know to, to enable yeah. me to do fully
2: exciting. I was going to ask you about when you're getting that that mindset of write, writing a book, writing a novel with all the characters who go with it, try and describe how you what it feels like to immerse yourself in that world because. As a songwriter occasionally, I know the feeling where for a few days i will become obsessed with every syllable of a song that I might be writing. And, mm. and I know that it's only a few days and then it'll be done. Yeah. But with a book, you're talking about possibly a year of your life, two years of your life, writing it, living it, thinking about it, re- revisiting it. Is it. Try and describe what it, what, how intense it can be that getting into in the world of making a novel.
3: It can be so intense sometimes that I'll be having a conversation. I like to have conversations out loud. And I did this even before I wrote screen for screen. I'd have the conversations between two characters out loud. And sometimes I put out two cups for a cup when I've been making a brew instead of one because I've been convinced there's been two people there <laughs> because I've been chatting <laughs> as if I'm two people. Um, so that's how intense it gets sometimes. And then, um, and then- That's you know,
2: scary though, isn't it? Yeah,
3: it is, it
2: is scary. You <laughs> need me. help. Yeah,
3: and, <laughs> I know, you know, tell me It
2: works or so, do not it? It's working. But what have you doing It's it, working? And,
3: and, but it just, for me, I just, I do get, that immersion i love it and, and i really enjoy i'm a great i'm a person who's always lived half a, half a life in fantasy somewhere you know my yeah. head's always half somewhere else or very easily goes there um yeah. and then other times it's about the nuts and bolts other times it's about depending on where i'm at i suppose with the drafting process if i'm at a structural edit with a book then it's about you know i'll have notes back from an editor saying this scene isn't working but you know you need this this character needs to, to be more like that in order to make that payoff happen down the line in 10, 20 pages. So yeah. it's, it's, that's more you know, the, the sort of the technical nuts and bolts of, of the writing rather than the just being able to let your brain freestyle in conversation. Um, so
2: an editor, excuse me, in that respect, an editor while well, you're writing the book is like a record producer helping a band make a record. That's what the editor does, is it?
3: One hundred percent. That's the perfect analogy. Yeah, exactly like that. And I'm a writer who loves being edited, and I really—I'm not a writer who thinks she can go away to a cave and come back with a masterpiece in the year. I really, you know, right. the opposite. I always get the ending wrong. Always get the ending wrong. And so, so that, that I love that process because it's an education, and it always makes the work better.
2: So, that's your second film, Animals, massive success, became a film, etc. Your third book is now being made into a TV program it's been adapted for tv i believe
3: yes that's right so so yes that's very exciting That's a different way again a different a different form because tv has to work in episodes obviously so so we we're kind of it's about what you kind of put in the pilot and how do you how do you make sure that everything is set off in that first episode to keep people watching and and to and to break it up into chunks that are half an hour long and that have little story arcs within that half an hour and that are satisfying and that work on their own but also make this big you know big bigger, bigger um, that can take you know several hours rather than an hour, an hour and a half like a film. It's great for a novelist because you get a lot more space. You get more time and space to to tell your story because you just you get hours rather than than you know ninety minutes. So so yeah so so it's great for that.
2: Sounds like another career option that just screenwriting alone. Oh yeah. Because you, you, I assume you can take other people's creative ideas, other people's books, and and do the screenwriting and. Absolutely, you,
3: know, you can. And and I found myself. I was wondering if I'd get any ideas that came to me as a screen idea. You know, after I wrote Animals as a film, um, yeah. I was thinking, can I only do adaptation or am I ever going to get an idea coming along that says, hello, I'm a screen idea, I've come out of nowhere. And, and it didn't happen for ages, I guess, because I didn't know the, the form that well, but, but it has started happening and I've had ideas for TV shows and I've had ideas for um, for films that have just come as that and, I, and when they come, it's like, they're not trying to be a book in any way. And I'm not thinking I should write that as a book first. I'm thinking that is just for screen and that's yeah. good. So I know my brain is starting to work more in that way and and, um, and I'm just getting more comfortable with the form, I suppose, and, and the way it works.
2: Let's talk about the thing you did with the Cortina as well last year, that was was that oh. this year? was um, that was was a a, a, quite a unique collaboration i I don't i'm not aware of a band and a writer doing anything like that in the past so tell us how that came about you know uh... that
3: was such a joy to do and it was such a wonderful because again that was like a music writing a music video but um but it was liam Frey, the lead singer who who approached me because he's always been so lovely and supportive of my books like he loved animals and he came to the premiere in manchester and um you know we and. and so he said, would you be up for writing some stories that we can make into videos for the new album? And and I was like, yeah, yeah, please. That sounds great. So he said, you can either write them as stories or you can write them as treatments because he knew I'd be, been doing the screenwriting as well. Um, and so I was like, okay, I think I'll write them as stories. And so I'd had these ideas. And, and so yeah, so I wrote three interconnected short stories and sent them over. And I knew I knew a bit about what the songs were about, but but he didn't want it to be that I was writing them for the songs. So he just wanted me to know a little bit about what the themes were. And actually we, we write about very similar themes anyway. So, so we knew they were going to mesh. So, yeah, so, yeah so, so I just wrote these stories and then, yeah, they filmed these videos around them, which were just incredible. So there's a brilliant um, director called Joe Connor who made them, who's, who's just incredible. And we we ended up talking there were bits of it, bits of the thing i would written in the story that were just not translatable. I think there was a bit like where a woman gives birth to a cougar in the bath and they were like, okay, how are we gonna get around this one? <laughs> so I was like, okay, we need to rethink really that. Um, but that was just, just how the story came out and they found a very creative way around it where she just sank she sank through the bottom of the bath and ended up swimming with a cgi whale which looks beautiful in
2: the beautiful. end it's this stunning bit of work if you watch all three consecutively because when the singles were coming out i saw the videos and i wasn't really sure where they were going you know it's like loose based around the female character and yeah there's something going on she's in a nightclub one minute she's not having a great time but the, the, the end sequence it's like wow, it's a short film if you watch them all back to back as one complete piece of work, it must be very emotional at the end, I think.
3: Yes, yeah, yeah. Gorgeous, done. I mean, what they wanted to do. They wanted to make it something that would work, you know, they'd work individually as chapters, but then with the any yeah. other they'd work they'd, they'd build to to that crescendo.
2: Beautiful. So, so yeah, that was
3: brilliant, such a good experience.
2: Let's talk about Manchester. Before the lockdown, before the virus, I don't, I mean, we all knew what a beautiful city this was. I don't think we realised how, how things were going to change so profoundly in the space of a few weeks. Try and paint a little picture of uh, our, our, our life up until the lockdown. Just
3: the, the most atmospheric city in the world in terms of love and in terms of spirit and dynamism. I think that the atmosphere there is just unlike anywhere else because people actually live in the city. People live right in the city and that does something. Mm. And and I think you wander around there and you're just, you're just constantly aware of a great love of people, I think. That's what I always sense there. There's just like a great love and respect for people. Um, in Manchester and it, you know it, it, it inspires me all I, I can't imagine ever writing a book that isn't in some way about Manchester there's yeah. all it's always, always there you know it's even though I live in Brighton now um you know that's where my husband's work is but all I write about is Manchester it's just you yeah. know I, I, I haven't got can account you know my imagination is just there my soul is there and always will be I think
2: how, how do you find it taking the the, the the two women in the animals book and putting them in, in a Dublin based story how was that for you was, it, was, was that easy or was it a bit of a oh,
3: trauma it was, really. well it was, me. it was I was gutted at first
2: because <laughs> you know <laughs> I was like it's set in Manchester the book's set in Manchester <laughs> but the film the film is in Dublin and
3: it was you know it was it was it felt like manchester wasn't just a casual choice it wasn't just because you know i knew it and i could write about it easily without any research it was it was also because it was it, the, the character of the city reflected the character of the girls you know they were It was a city in flux it was in transformation it was you know the the, the cityscape was changing all the time the buildings were going up there's cranes everywhere it was like it was a place you know transforming and that felt really significant so so yeah, so it was, yeah, it was really upsetting when we found out we couldn't make it there. Yeah. But you reach a point with a film where you've got to make some pretty tough decisions about if you want to make it, basically. Yeah. And it always comes down to money because it costs so much to make a film. And I think that we had a huge amount of support from the Irish Film Board who were fantastic. And they just got the film, they got the heart of the story. They wanted to make it. And part of that deal was that we, made, we shot it in Dublin and so we were like, do you know what? They love it, they get it. We want to do it with them. As creative collaborators, they are our guys. And, and so we want to do it. And that was the right choice. And, and, and actually I learned all the things that are the same about Manchester and Dublin. And actually, you know, there's a lot that's similar, you know, the, the booziness, the radicalness, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there's, there's poetry on the streets in both, you know, there's, yeah. there's, there's a, lot, a lot of similarities between the two. And, and I felt like the, the heart of the story stayed true. And that's where it is now and that's where it'll forever be in my head and my heart really i think once something's been made you'll know this whether it's a song a book anything once it's once it's there and it exists in the world you almost can't unimagine it you can't it can't be anything other than what it is i'll
2: say on a weekly basis to people about the song this is how it feels which is a song that i wrote in 87 or 88 1988 i think i wrote it. And it is, I've always described it, it's like a child who's now 30-odd-year-old and it, it, it's beyond my control. You know, so the, the, yeah. the way that people sing it as a football chant, yeah. you know, the United fans taunt the City fans with it, the City fans taunt United with it, the Rangers are using it in Glasgow. It's, it's got its own life and it's beautiful, but it's like, I don't have to give my permission to the United fans. Mm-hmm. They don't come to me saying, Clint, can here. It's like, it's yours, it's out there now, that's isn't it? it. You know what I mean? It's a beautiful thing, but it's, it's the same. Like you say, I totally relate to what you're saying there, but when you put a book out there, it's like a child, and it's got its absolutely. whole life on it.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: I saw something on YouTube a couple of days ago. As part of the lockdown, a lot of people are doing these little like like Zoom videos where the, the musicians are in different parts of the, the the world, wherever. And it was a bunch of music students, probably average age 12, 13, and I think probably somewhere from over your neck of the woods, like Bury or Rottenstall area, I think I can't remember the name of the school. But they'd done a an instrumental version of this how it feels on classical instruments and I was watching it and it was really moving it was really emotional because I'm watching it thinking these kids weren't even in the world when I wrote this you know what (laughs) what I mean and it was like every piece I'd written the keyboard parts and the the vocal amp was being replicated by an instrument so little things like it was like somebody playing it on an oboe or whatever and it was really emotional watching it and oh, beautiful yeah, at the same time, yeah. you know, but it's, it's like that, it's like that teenager revisiting you and saying, Hey dad, look what I've done. Yeah. because you Died me in blue. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Cause you put something out there, you know, that's living and yeah. breathing and that is going to change for every person who hears it. And absolutely. That, is, that is such a beautiful thing. You know, it's, it feels good. Doesn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. As a creative person, it's the best thing in it. Let's talk before you go about, I know you live in Brighton now, but, um, let's get back to Manchester. Um, who are your favourite humans of Manchester ever, Emma?
3: My favourite humans of Manchester—it's got to be Emmeline Pankhurst and Caroline Ahern. 400%. Oh yeah. yeah. Can I sneak in Victoria Wood as well?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, she's as mank as any of us. Even though she's <laughs> <laughs> well, know—she
3: very- you know went to my uh, school.
2: Oh, did she really? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. um like a lot of people that are people's favourite. You, you don't have to be a Mancunian to be somebody's favourite. Human of Manchester it can be somebody that's it, I mean where was Sherry from Sherry Ashworth where was, where was she from
3: so Sherry was originally from London but has lived in Manchester for much much longer than that I think she left London probably in her early 20s and moved right. to Manchester so um so yeah, yeah she put she, her in there as well she's Whitefield yeah
2: yeah so yeah I forgot to mention Sherry Ashworth actually ended up publishing your first book is that that's right, right. So, go, yeah, yeah yeah
3: that was and so that was such a nice way to sort of close that little circle because she she didn't encourage me to be a writer and then yeah i mean the the sort of like the 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 tragic bit of the of the for writing my first novel story after I'd, you know, taken the redundancy money and and spent six months doing it was that no bugger wanted to buy it. All the big oh. publishers turned it down. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> so I was really gutted and felt like a bit of an idiot because this thing that yeah. I thought the, the thing I thought I could do and I'd spent all my whole life building up to doing, I couldn't yeah. actually do, or so it seemed according to the London publishing industry. Whereas Sherry had um she'd retired she was about to retire from being a teacher at that point and she'd loved she loved the book and she'd been following the sort of the progress of it and she she had a dream to set up her own publishing company and so she did she set up a little publishers with her husband in whitefield um hidden gem and they published my book they published my first book and if it weren't so if it weren't for sherry i wouldn't have got anywhere so i'm you know again i had her to thank for just you know turning my life around and setting me on the right trajectory
2: before we finish emma i want you to describe manchester in three words please
3: i'm going to say radical Boozy, me.
2: Me too. <laughs> <laughs>
3: like my, just my true, true north. My true north. You know, it will Fantastic. always be. It will always be the guide within me, and all my family is still there. So yeah, I'm there every month, and so, you know, there's nowhere else has ever felt like, or will ever feel like home ever.
2: That's beautiful, Emma Jane Unsworth. Thank you for being a human of excess, Manchester, at home.
3: My great pleasure. <laughs> Thanks so much, Clint.
2: That was Emma Jane Unsworth. Next time, I'm joined by music promoter, manager and founder of the You Are Not Alone Festival, Mr Ben Taylor. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us, feel free to leave a review. We always like to hear your feedback. Stay safe and look after each other, Manchester. Thanks for listening. See you next week.